be enabled continuing our thoughts on the words we considered in the morning which you will find in the book of the prophet Zechariah Zechariah chapter 3 And we shall read from the beginning. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee O say, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Joshua was the high priest of Israel was the representative of the people in things spiritual uh, but uh, due to the circumstances that obtained in Israel at this time, we may consider him as representing them also in a civil or political capacity. He is before the angel, clothed in filthy garments, unable to defend himself, unable to give any reasonable explanation of his condition. That is, he acknowledges his gift. He has nothing to say. His mouth is done because he is found guilty before God. But at this juncture we read of one who speaks for Joshua, one who is brought before us under the name of the Lord. And he addresses himself first of all to the adversary. He has something to say to Joshua, yes, but that has to wait. He addresses the adversary. 
In those words, the Lord rebuked thee, O saint. But we ask the question, how could the Lord rebuke him? When Satan's accusations were based on the law of God, Well, that is the secret that is to be about to be that is about to be made clear. How could God rebuke him? And remember, this is a great secret, and it is something for which we are entirely dependent on the spirit of the of the Lord to discover it to us personally. This is uh, the very witness of the gospel that the Lord can rebuke sin. And encourage and acquit or acquit and encourage the sinner who is self-condemned as well as condemned by the law of God. Now we said that the reason and the only reason why the Lord could rebuke Satan was unhandless that there is something over and above the law. There is something else. God's revelation is more extensive than the law. This revelation is not exhausted by the law. There is something else. There is grace And it is on the grounds of this grace that the Lord rebukes it. And in this particular passage, God's grace is brought to our notice under the term, the choice of God, the election of God. May the Lord rebuke thee, but what Lord? The Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem. It is the Lord who hath chosen Jerusalem that can rebuke. And uh, if the matter is to be prosecuted further, it must be prosecuted not in relation to Joshua, because what he is and what he is not has now faded from the picture. Everything depends now on this, what God is. It is the Lord who hath chosen Jerusalem. Has the Lord done right in this? Has he acted righteously? Well, Satan could not bring an accusation of unrighteousness against God. 
ਤੋਂ ਮੈਨੂੰ ਹੱਜੂ ਇੱਕ he was true that he was he was better acquainted with things than to do that he had to he could find no fault with god's choice with god's election that stood and stood secure and stood and moved up hence we hear no more of Satan's accusations. The ground is taken from under his feet. He accused on the grounds of love purely and simply and solely. Now when there is an added element in a case it makes an entirely new case. Everything has changed. Not that the law has been made void. Not that the terms uh, that the law demands can be flouted or forgotten. No. And this is now the point we want to to consider. First of all, the difference there is between uh, the uh, natural and the sovereign attributes of God. Now by that we mean that there are certain things or there are certain exercises that God must have that is put beyond any doubt in God's word we read for instance that God cannot lie not only that he will not but God cannot lie that would be a, a violation of his own being and that cannot happen he cannot lie god in other words must be truthful he is the god who cannot lie that is uh, a natural and essential attribute of god truth another one is justice god will not only be just but God must be just and that is precisely what the adversary knew so well he had occasion to know it he was the living example of God's justice for the angel who kept the angels who kept not their first estate were cast down into darkness preserved in chains for the judgment of the great day the adversary knew well that God had to be just that it wouldn't be anything else that is a natural or an essential attribute of God 
He must be that. He cannot be anything else. But when we come to mercy, to God's gracious election, we are on different grounds entirely. We cannot say that God must be merciful. We cannot say that mercy is an essential attribute of God. No. We have to recognize the distinction between mercy and justice, for instance. They are not to be classified together. They are both of God. They are both glorious, excellent. But as to their exercise, they are not in the same class. No. God may be merciful, or he may not. You remember how uh, distinctly Jehovah himself put this before Moses when he declared unto him his glory. What did God say? I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, showing mercy to thousands, showing mercy to thousands, not showing mercy to all. What does he say again in connection with Pharaoh? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He never says anywhere, I will be just to whom I will be just. No, God must be just. He cannot be anything else but just. But we cannot say that God must be merciful. That is viewing things as they are in God absolutely. It is right to say that now under the gospel God must be merciful. But that's having a reference to Christ Jesus and the things that he has done. Which things need not have, to, need not have been done at all. But we are referring to mercy as a divine activity. To every manifestation of it. And in that respect we say that we cannot predicate necessity of God's mercy. You cannot say that God must be merciful. If you could say that, then to be logically consistent and to be scripturally consistent, which is more important, you would have to hold to the doctrine of universal salvation. And not only to the universal salvation of mankind, you would have also to hold the salvation of the devils. If God were necessarily merciful, 
qualities, mercy is a sovereign attribute. God can or may or may not be merciful as he sees fit. Now it is here that the advocate who pleads on behalf of Joshua silences the adversary. Precisely here, may the Lord rebuke thee, the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem. He hath chosen Jerusalem because that was his good pleasure. And no other reason can be assigned to it. It is the divine prerogative, the divine choice of choosing according to his own free will. Now the reserve says this, the adversary cannot continue with his argument. Why? Or versed as he was with justice, he knew nothing about mercy. When this was brought into the case, then his objections fell to the ground. And so it is to the present day, and so it will be. As long as sinners will be saved, this is what satisfies the conscience. And only this satisfies the conscience. That is the conscience that has been disturbed by the Spirit of God. The conscience that has not been disturbed will be satisfied with anything. Yes, however flimsy. The reason, it is not really disturbed. But the conscience that has been touched by the finger of God will not be satisfied with anything in the creature, with anything based on the law. And it certainly will not be satisfied with the gospel used as law. Now I know I have said this to you time and time again, but I'm not so sure that I made myself perfectly clear on this. And I certainly would like on this point to make myself perfectly clear, not only that you would be able to understand what I mean, but that you would be incapable of misunderstanding it. Using the gospel as a law. Now I have said that because I believe that's the most prevalent error in religious circles today. The gospel is used not as gospel, but as a law. People approach the gospel 
as if it were another law. They approach it in the spirit. Well, God says, if you will believe, then you will be saved. We believe. We have done this. Therefore, we are saved. That logical syllogism is irrefragable, it's quite so, as a logical syllogism. But what is at the base of this? What is basically wrong with it? Well, it is this, that at least in many cases, the attitude towards the gospel, the spirit that rules and regulates men in this type of argument is an eager spirit. It is altogether eager. There is nothing of gospel in it. As if they had said, we did our part. No, God will do his. No, you could not state the law better than that. That's the law, pure and simple. And nothing else but law. It doesn't matter whether it operates on the, the propositions of the gospel or not. It's law. And nothing but law. We did our part. We believed that God would do this. Now I don't know how, how law could be stated better than that. And it is stated in relation to the gospel. Only belief is taken instead of works. And in the final analysis, there is absolutely no difference. In this particular type of spirit we are describing, we have done our duty. Now God will do his. Is that the gospel? Well, if it is, uh, it is a different one from the one we know. What is the gospel? Well, this is the gospel, that God justifies beyond God. And justifies them, not on the grounds of what they have done, whether it is believing or anything else. This is the gospel. That God justifies the ungodly as ungodly. That is, he doesn't justify the man who says, I have done or I have believed. He doesn't justify that man at all. He's not ungodly. He has something. He has much. But the man who is ungodly is the man who had this mouth and who comes in guilty before God and who can do nothing. Either in relation to the law or in relation to the gospel, he is as helpless when confronted with the gospel as he is when he is confronted with the law. Absolutely 
Now this is fools removed from the fatalism that rests in man's inability. No, we're not talking of that. We're talking of a man who is very much in earnest and who is very active. Not the man who sits back and says, well, we can't do nothing in any case. The trouble with that man is that he doesn't believe that at all. But the man who believes it cannot be at rest. He is troubled. And he is troubled with us above all else. That he cannot do anything. His inability is his sin, not his excuse. And now in that predicament, in that position and condition, the Lord does something for him. And that is the gospel. The Lord does something for him, not on the grounds of what man does. That, we say, would change the law, would change the gospel into a law. But the Lord does something for this man. The Lord for his own sake. The Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem, may he rebuke thee. He speaks, he breaks the silence, he says, let her be light. We repeat, that is the gospel, and nothing else is. Nothing else is. The Lord spoke for Joshua when he couldn't speak for himself. And this is what he made known concerning him, what God had done for him, what God had done on his behalf. The Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem, the sovereign attribute of God is brought into operation in Joshua's consciousness. Mercy, mercy, he understands mercy. The man who says, I believed, and therefore God will do his part, doesn't know the first thing about mercy. Not the first thing. Doesn't know anything at all about it. But the man who would say not, but who has righteousness imputed to him, that man understands something about mercy, pure mercy on the part of God, not conditioned by nothing whatsoever on the part of the creature. No, it finds its being in God. It finds the basis of its operation in God. Hence, this man could be set free. He couldn't be set free in any other way. He needed mercy. 
May the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. The Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem. And as we pointed out in the morning, Joshua here is a type or a representative of Jerusalem. Now what, what can be what can be said? Nothing but this. What hath God wrought? This is the doing of the Lord, and wondrous in our eyes. This is all his doing. Not partly his and partly Joshua's. No, that type of thing might do all right when the day is high, but it will not stand the test of death and judgment. As the other man said, what have we not done? Who are the we? Myself and God, he said. Myself and God, yes. Well, that is not the gospel of God's grace. It is God's work, for which he will have all the glory. But now we say, what about faith? You're not giving his prophet this to faith. Well, maybe not in the conception of some, but we would certainly like, like to give its biblical place to faith. And what's that? to look and see the salvation of the Lord. That's faith. It is not something that contributes to that salvation in any way whatsoever. It is, some, it is not something that may be laid down as a price for that salvation. No, that's the law. That's law, law, law. But what does faith actually do? It beholds what God has done. It receives what God has done. It receives God. In the glory of his mercy, in the operation of his power. This is what faith is. It doesn't contribute to salvation. No. It was never meant to do that. And furthermore, it never draws attention to itself. The faith that is the gift of God will never incline a man to say, no, I, I believe and I will rest on that. No, the man who rests on his faith rests on something that will let him down to an eternity of perdition. What does Mr. Rest on? Christ. And that is what the faith of this God's gift always does. It doesn't give a man to rest on his faith. It gives a man to rest in and on Christ only for salvation. 
Well, this is what happened in the case of Joshua. Mercy is brought into the picture. And alongside of that mercy, there is not only hope, there is that, but there is strong consolation. There is a blessed persuasion that the person may not only be saved, in the case of Joshua, that he may, that he may not only be divest, divested of his physical garments, but clothed with a change of raiment. But then there is another thing here that is said of Joshua, and with that we conclude. He is compared to a brown neck out of the mind. Well, there are various questions arising in connection with that, which we can only mention. What eye is this? How was Joshua in this fight? And who plucked him? displeasure with Israel when he sent them into the captivity in Babylon. That was a fire indeed, the fire of chastisement. In the case of many, the fire of punishment. But some of them were taken out of it. But taken out of it as it were with difficulty. Not that there is anything difficult with God. But we use the term difficulty as it is used in the second epistle of in the first epistle of Peter, where we read, if the righteous be saved with difficulty, or as we have it. If the righteous scarcely be saved, saved with difficulty, if that is so, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? If the righteous scarcely be saved, and who plucked him out of the fire? The God of Israel. The God whose prerogative it is to rebuke Satan. And on what grounds did he do this? On the grounds of his own sovereign and divine choice. The Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem. It was for that reason that Joshua and those who were with him were plucked as brands from the fire. That is the historical saying. Now what is the application? Well, we're taking that the application is obvious. All salvation is to be traced to election. 
Christ himself is to be traced to us. I set forward, I set forth by the Father to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. That is, salvation flows from the sovereign exercise of God's love towards sinners. It is sovereign salvation. That's what we mean by sovereign salvation. It is to be traced to God only and entirely excluding everything on the part of the creator but sin. Everything but sin. And that does not in the slightest degree interfere with man's responsibility and on the grounds of that responsibility the fact that he is saved with difficulty. We repeat, nothing is difficult for God but it is through much tribulation that the saints will enter into their everlasting quest. Not because the God couldn't save them in any other way but because this is his appointed will. This is a brand plucked out of the bird, and the inference is this. It is plucked out in such a way as that it will never go into that burning again. Viewed from the point of justification, it is an accomplished fact which will not be repeated and which cannot which cannot bear to be repeated in its very name. He is taken out, and out he will stay. And considered from the point of view of sanctification, we have here the Lord's continued care of his people, despite their waywardness, despite their provocations. He still deals with them as he sees fit, bringing them often to deep water, bringing them to stand self-accused and self-condemned, but bringing to lie to them in his time. Christ Jesus, as the one who is made unto them of God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What think ye of Christ? Who is our Savior? Our faith? Our works? Our service? What is it Christ? In the glory of his person. In the fullness of his glory. And in his everlasting suitableness to the needs of a poor and perishing sinner. As such, the Lord said unto Satan, May the Lord rebuke thee, the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem. Have we heard the Lord's rebuke? And let us remember this. You can argue with Satan from morning to night. It, it will not make the slightest effect of it. 
گھنو سات رولس آف لاجک Thou shalt have the praise 